What's up, nerds? Welcome back to Region Free, a podcast where we talk about movies. More specifically, where we talk about how movies can be anything. Anything you want them to be. Oh, this is not a good start. This is I'm already <laughs> sensing let how him, you feel about co- this let one. Let him cook. Let him cook. I'm, oh. No, no. I mean, I love it. I love what we're here to talk about this week. Okay. And I love who I'm here to talk about it with. Uh, I'm joined, as always, you know you know what's coming up next. It's Blake Hester, the man, the myth, the legend. But, but, but. Who else? Who's that? Is that? Is that? Is that Jason Daphnis on Region Free? <laughs> Vomiting his way as our first special guest ever. It's a it's a it's an honor. And you know, uh, I was I was wondering. You uh yes. you haven't put out any episodes as of this recording where you have a special guest. Am I really the first of, of the whole batch? Number one. Whoa. If you don't if you don't count our dogs. Yeah, Cloud Moser's tapping his little feet in every in the background Aww. of every single yeah. episode. He's just feeling and the Reagan's beat. barking in several of them, but mm-hmm. yeah, if you don't count those for sure. She's just screaming one. away. She's just got some shit to say. Thank you so much for having me on the show, fellas. I'm a long-time listener. I, I I don't know. I've seen a few of the movies that you talked about. I've listened to all the episodes even though I don't oh, know wow. most of the movies. It was only in preparation. I've been watching I wasn't to sure two two times okay. speed. <laughs> it's inaudible. Sometimes I do that when I edit them, yeah, and it's just like I'm like, do we really sound like that? It's a joke. Well, yeah. it's an honor to have you here today. We're really talking more so about a filmmaker than a specific film. We have a film to jump off with, but I ended up watching most of what this guy has made in his career that I could get my hands on, basically. Sure. Um, we're talking about Shozen Fukui's 964 Pinocchio, which is a sort of stalwart in the Japanese cyberpunk movement and was recently reissued by Media Blasters on a beautiful uh, Blu-ray. Now, uh, there's a lot to be said about this film, specifically the plot, its influences, and, and where it goes. And to do the honors, I'm I'm handing the hosting mic to Blake Hester for this one. I want you to take <laughs> us on an odyssey, a journey. Absolutely. And get us into Nine this. Si- 964 Pinocchio came into my life like a fucking wrecking ball. Jason <laughs> Daphnis brought it over, sat my ass down, with I, I believe thirty five dollars worth of Taco Bell, which is an entire whole, franchise's it was worth a whole of food. Table. It was it was sickly, yeah. yeah. Wow. And we watched that movie, and you know it's it only happens every couple years that you watch a movie and you're like, oh, that's it. That's the one. That's that's on my top. That's why 10 they list. wake movies? It, it's game over. Like, and that was nine six four for me. The gentleman's a, the gentleman's five on Letterboxd, as I understand it. Exactly. Correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Gave it a gentleman's five. Um. Following in the footsteps of like Jackass Four, <laughs> Vortex, and other Paragons, Teton, yeah, uh, Nine Six Four made it up there. Uh, as a casual fan and observer of the Japanese cyberpunk genre, um, I'm not a big cyberpunk fan, but I think like Japanese cyberpunk, and we're removing Akira and Ghost in the Shell and the anime stuff from this, like the live action stuff, the Tetsuos, the Burst Cities, Death Powder, Organ, all of these things. Mm-hmm. I find very interesting conceptually. They're also just like nasty little angry films that I find really cool. And 964 was one of the big missing films on my list as I was trying to watch through a lot of these. Because it was like, it was out of print for so long. Unearthed had put a DVD out in the early 2000s that was like a lot of unearthed stuff that just like they don't have the rights for after seemingly only a couple of years. Yeah, uh, was just gone for a while. Fukui still has a couple of things that are like trapped on VHS or, or DVD yeah. like forever, basically. Yeah, and so like why I watched Jason brought it over, I watched it, instantly loved it, started digging into this guy and just found him an absolutely spellbinding director who uh I feel like 
where's the punk portion of this on his sleeve? Which, like, people have said about other, you know, cyberpunk, Japanese cyberpunk directors, like Sogo Ishii, very famously, like, just put punk bands in some of his cyberpunk films. But mm-hmm. I think this dude is making very uh, confrontational or aggressive or just, like, combative movies. Yeah. And 964 is, like, literally a film that is screaming at you for 90 minutes. You are, in looking at, like, the popular critical appraisal of this movie, you will find a lot of just, like, I fucking hated this. Like, this is unwatchable. Yeah, I can't imagine why. (laughs) It's, like, (laughs) it is is a flavor, right? Like, and that's why I'm Mm -hmm. I'm, uh, concerned with what Blake thinks, because you have probably, I'm I'm not going to make aspersions at AJ's experience in the genre, but, like, you probably have the most experience with this genre and, like, the ancillary, you know, crust of it, right? So did it it align to that? I've heard a lot of, you you know, uh, insinuations that it's, like, really because Fukui worked underneath uh, Shinya Tsukamoto, I think it was, right? Like yeah, he I think that's. And that it was like I think that's embellished. Yeah, I think that's embellished. He worked. He worked on Tetsuo, um, which also Kei Fujiwara was starred in and uh, was a, a big creative force in, and who did a couple of her own kind of cyberpunk esque adjacent films after this. Um, Fukui did work on it, but it is for all intents and purposes seemed fairly brief mm. i think a lot of people very briefly worked on tetsuo because it was such a nightmare <laughs> to work on that most of those people just fucking left and i think by the end like it was just uh sukamoto by himself finishing the goddamn thing um he seemed like a nightmare in his younger age <laughs> but fukui did work on it and i think i think that's like just a footnote that because Sukamoto is so popular, has been dragged out for so long rather mm. than anything all that important. I mean, I'm sure he took influences of it because it does feel like 964 is in conversation with something like Tetsuo oh, or other cyberpunk films. But it also feels like in a lot of ways, and I'm not the first person to point this out, like the almost like the the logical conclusion to what a lot of those films were doing. Like mm. you think of the rougher elements of Tetsuo the aggression of that of something like that in Rubber's Lover, which is his feature length after this, which came several years, and then nine six four, like they're kind of stripping away a lot of a lot of the more impressive like stop motion or technical elements mm-hmm. and just putting on to screen like film and emotion in its raw form, which is like a defining characteristic of a lot of this cyberpunk stuff as like they're you're exiting the economic miracle into the lost decade. Yeah. yeah. You just get a lot of kids who are fucking scared and pissed off and some of them own cameras. What when I was doing my like initial bout of research on this film and for this episode, I was kind of surprised to just like when you look at the whole timeline and put it all together, realize I don't want to call it like a flash in the pan, but just put together how quickly and how intensely all of that Japanese cyberpunk stuff was coming out together. I think like, oh yeah, Akira is obviously sort of the the godfather of the entire thing, and then Ghost in the Shell is wrapped up in there. But filmmakers like Sogoishi, uh, Sukamoto, and uh, Fukui, like all were just in like it was that those couple of years in the late eighties to early nineties, and then like that was really sort of the the crystallization of that, and then. For a genre that's so influential now, um, like you can point back to all of these as influences to this day. Um, it's really interesting we, to think just about how kind of intimately and close-knit the whole thing was. We have to issue a correction. Ishii, Sogo Ishii, who's changed his name, yeah. and I don't exactly <laughs> remember what to, and I don't know it's, why. It's uh, Gai, Gaikuryu. Yeah, yeah. He was a big influence on Akira, so it kind of all starts with 
Sogo Ishii. Mm. And Akira, you know, was doing the manga and stuff afterward, like beforehand Otomo was working on that. But in terms of like the filmic cyberpunk stuff, Ishii actually was more influential on that. So I feel like he's the godfather hmm. of it all. But I did, I had, I would say you're right in calling it a flash in a pan because if you separate the manga side from it, just the live action cyberpunk stuff, yeah. what we think of is like literally like seven films. Oh, yeah. It's like it. In America, we're still dragging that shit out for decades and decades. In Japan, it's like films you can watch in a weekend. Well, God, that's seven the films entire in like gamut. maybe, you know, five to six years total. Like it's kind yeah, of just yeah. 85 to like 91 or 92, which again, for something that's so influential and kind of totemic is, is interesting to think about how like just short and these guys all knew each other and were yeah. in, in one way or another working very closely together. There's a, there's a lot of... Tetsuo in this movie but I think in a way that sort of spins off on its own like the finale is basically the same conceptually and sort of visually directly pulling from a lot of that but I think um Fukui's doing a lot of interesting stuff uh Mm -hmm. to to put his own spin on that I I love Jason oh I'm sorry I was just gonna I've done this before I was just gonna keep talking you want to leave me in Blake with a quick I don't know you want to snap your fingers or something just calling me like a dog (laughs) <laughs> Jason, how'd you first see this movie? Uh, so it was actually out of an attempt to like scoop one of my friends, uh, my good friend Aaron Grossman. I'm on a podcast with him about movies we see here uh, at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, it was probably mid-pandemic. I looked at his letterbox watch list. I was just farting around and saw this movie pop up. He must have heard about it from, I don't know, Mubi has a listing and maybe mm-hmm. maybe one of the freako circles that he uh, sort of swims in. Somebody put it in there. So um I saw it there and I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scoop him on this. This is one that he's going to put on his letterbox watch list. It is going to exist in the ether of that watch list of thousands and yeah. thousands of movies forever. I will watch it. And I did. I, like, I think that, that night, actually, that I noticed, I found it on YouTube. It, it, all that was really available prior to this Blu-ray release um, that just recently came out was this 480p, maybe English subbed version. Uh, still yeah, yeah. still very watchable, but like incredibly, like uh, just a different beast to watch than the actual restoration. Um, and I... I figured I was, I mean, maybe at the time it had maybe a hundred or 200 reviews or maybe a couple thousand logs, maybe on Letterboxd, which is like rookie numbers for kind of shit I watch. So I decided I'm going to make this a huge part of my personality. I'm going to watch this movie <laughs> again and again. And I'm just going to keep logging. I'm just going to like, it's not going to be a bit because I did enjoy what, like I did not yeah. enjoy watching it, but I enjoyed having watched it, I suppose. <laughs> That's how these movies go down. Um, and by the time that you, I forget if you Blake, like messaged me about it or if you'd seen me logging it on Letterboxd. And that sort of renewed my interest in it. I pre-ordered the Blu-ray. You kept me abreast of like mm-hmm. issues that they had with production and like something yeah. went wrong along the way. That mystery I would still love to love to uh, untangle because this this restoration that we watched together, for as beautiful as the main frame is, there's still a lot in there that feels like, well, wow, was this intentional at the time of creation or is this like a fuck up in the like the, I don't know, yeah, AJ, yeah. the couple notice, like, of the, freezes and like the freezes the, the, just black. like scratches at the top and bottom of yeah. the frame and still like hairs sometimes and, and it feels like if they're doing this at, for part of like the pro like the, sticking to the original bit of it that's incredible if they just are bad at their yeah. jobs maybe also incredible by it but by accident i don't know it was it was a really fun experience so it just has stuck in my mind since the first time i saw it i just previous to that had seen um for the first time and only time tetsuo the iron man still have not really delved into this genre very much and it was just really fun to see the differences between those like two takes on the same genre i read later that i don't know if this is true but 964 may be the first example of japanese cyberpunk in color i guess because Mm. tsukamoto's movie kicked it off and that's black and white 
maybe this was like the first example of that and it just shows so vividly with like the bile and pus and blood and gore and puke that shows up throughout the movie just coloring everything against that dingy shitty background of of uh, you know metropolitan tokyo in the in the 90s um no it was it was a really like stark experience to see this for the first time and i hope to have pulled out a lot more in my second watch uh but i feel like i'm monopolizing the mic now um i i, I really care liked how you characterized the uh I, I'm, I've said I'm monopolized and I'm going to just keep monopolizing, but um, I really liked we how you it. characterized, <laughs> really liked how you characterized the making of the movie, uh, Blake, as like just people who are new, newly found with money and angry, you know, or like they're losing, mm-hmm. they they just don't have as much social or like literal capital as once they used to, and they're just sort of making these sub- subversive, transgressive things because this comments, I think, on that earlier motion of like this genre being built out of um you know the the bones of low budget with something that is still very low budget but like advancing with technology the way that this movie like just shoots every space uh to make it feel like grosser and lonelier than it probably is i think was is just like the defining characteristic of like how this movie was to been envisioned and maybe storyboarded if it was yeah but there's just like a lot of camera shaking there are a lot of strange angles and the inside of a room feels like a gross palace at times just because of the angles they choose and the fish eye that they've thrown on the lens i was just blown away by by how this movie actually like looks even in the shitty 480p version and uh (laughs) yeah yeah, i mean like did any of that actually stick with you the first time around was this just like the the whole sum of it was a thing or did you pull out any stuff that looked particularly interesting to you uh the scene i think about second most the scene i think about the first most is the vomit scene but of course we'll, we'll get there when the time comes is like uh, jason i think we talked about this and then i know aj and me have talked about this when we covered dinshu kozo is like something i think the early sukamoto and then the fukui films share is you're seeing a director who doesn't have a ton of technical craft yet but is just like inherently mm-hmm. talented and there's so many shots in here that are so fucking inventive but like against how you might normally shoot a movie if you've may- have 10 years 20 years of experience and i think about that shot at the end where 964 the camera is running forwards and then not, Pinocchio is running the other way, and you like a uh, Doppler effect yeah. in the movie. And it's like such a fun way to show motion that I've never seen before. But it's also like, it's probably not the te- technically the best way to show that, but it's like such an inventive like idea or to show this like, you know, a lot of these movies, actually, it's it's not even low budget films. A lot of studio films in Japan, they just will bypass getting permits to shoot I in loved, public. I because love that about this. It was so yeah, cool. Yeah, <laughs> you, you can watch some Miike stuff that was clearly has like huge actors in it or made for a good sum of money and you'll still see people in the background of shots looking in the camera and it's like they didn't get permits. So anyway, point being, like definitely Fukui did not get permits to make this movie. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so like needing to do something in a public setting the idea just being, I think there's a street festival going on this weekend. <laughs> In the All middle right, of just run down the, the fuck, just yeah. just run down the fucking street. They they like, use that to challenge themselves and on some of the supplements. Yeah. It was like I think even the grocery store scene, which is one of my favorite scenes in the movie like was really they kind of used that as a constriction where they're walking around like yeah and he's trying to steal things and she's trying to stop him it's like you know they were actually doing that as they were filming the thing and then all the reactions from anyone in the background who's not you know one of the principal actors is is -hmm. probably authentic um yeah i think that's like that's the stuff that stands out to me about the making of this film or all the like quote unquote bad ideas that they just go for out of like technical necessity 
mm-hmm. of needing yeah. to make their and movie, it, and it's like it works every it, time. That's, it's funny how those flourishes become like a chicken and the egg situation, where you know the day of they're probably thinking like this is gonna look like shit. As uh, is, is this movie doomed? And and someone you know. 20 to 30 years later can be like it was really neat how inventive they were with all of those ways they uh he talks about how they stole a wheelchair and attached uh, the camera to it (laughs) rolled it through the streets to like film parts of those forced pov sections and then um there are shots uh i'm thinking specifically of like the kind of like bad guy council that happens when whenever those things are happening that they're just mm-hmm. like clearly shooting in like uh, an empty classroom or something that w- they had like 15 minutes off like just those yeah. kind of stark white walls and it just it has yeah. that like student film or like you know real sort of creative renegade energy that's that's hard to imitate when you're not doing it authentically you know you can shoot something that's like we want to go for that style but if mm-hmm. when you're not really strapped uh, it's it's hard to just make it look like you are. Mm-hmm. There's there's I, I'm going to take this moment to talk about uh, a, a niche I truly love, which is a Japanese films uh, was seen set in public where clearly that no one knew it was going to happen. Because <laughs> there's a few movies I don't think we're ever going to watch, but we got I need people to seek this out. One is the Graveyard of Honor remake where they send the main actor I can't remember his name uh, covered in blood down the streets of Shinjuku. <laughs> Oh my god! He's like covered, just covered in blood, just walking down these streets, and the camera is like so far away that no one would ever see the camera. As like I can't imagine what the people thought of that. Um, and Stray Cat, the first Stray Cat Rock film, which is like some delinquent, some like female delinquent film series starring Meiko Kaji. Uh, they send a fucking car into the subway station, and I, my head cannon <laughs> is that was not. They did not get permission, but someone they drive a car and a motorcycle through a fucking subway that station. Rocks. It's out of control. And then uh Mike again, um, in First Love, there's just a funny scene where this old dude is just staring in the camera for like a solid minute in the background of the scene where he's like getting his fortune read. Uh, uh, all great stuff. We we should talk too about um your your other recommendation this week, Blake, that that you you asked me and Jason to watch, uh, terrorist, yeah, uh, which you know roughly translates to vomit terrorist. Which you know when you sit down to watch a, a ten minute film called Vomit Terrorist and close your <laughs> eyes and imagine what you're gonna get, you're getting it, brother. You're getting it. Um, so that's you right. Know, they clearly filmed that Renegade style as well. Like and and that's the fun of it basically because what it is is a sort of 10 minute improv sesh of a woman in this really billowy black dress uh doing some some vomiting and then running around the streets of tokyo and into a subway car and vomiting threatening to vomit trying to hold back the vomit back and forth for 10 minutes and uh until the sort of screen burns out the same way it burned in and and you're sent back into the world as a different person what's going on Even there? well uh- also accosting people in just the street. Yeah, I was so, gonna like, say, she's like even more so than in Nine Six Four or any of these movies I've seen. Like she's literally going up to and grabbing people, grabbing a man who like sort of cordially smiles under the camera, like "Hi, you look guys look like you're having fun." And it's part of the story is that she's like just losing her mind, maybe losing her soul, just attacking and accosting people and about to to barf every. Like I was even having seen Nine Six Four, I was stunned by this thing that's yeah. also by Shozen Fukui, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. The um, well, I totally just forgot what I was gonna say. The version that I watched did not have subtitles on it, and I'm assuming that oh, there's either. no English translation of this anywhere. Uh, the dialogue maybe not the most important element, but still kind of just 
contributing to the really great sound design that's mm. consistent across all of his work. And honestly, this whole movement, like that's part of it. Um, it's where the punk comes from maybe, but uh, Fukui himself was like, got into filmmaking, shooting music videos for like local indie bands. And that sort mm-hmm. of transitioned into, he was shooting stuff live in clubs and thought about motion and crowds and how to stage that kind of stuff. And and the bridge from, you know, that documentary concert work into these experimental shorts was pretty quick but it was never like the desire of his and and in the interview that i was watching he talks about how he kind of wanted to be more involved with music than he ended up being he he actually rejects the cyberpunk label for some of his works and he proposes uh that they should be called industrial noise punk which i like (laughs) uh he's not rejecting the sort of punk connotation when it comes to the musical genre but he's like let's add another one out in front of that Mm -hmm. Um, let's get rid of the cyber bit he, um, I mean, I don't know if he still does to this day, but at least of, as of the last couple of years, like he's still performing like industrial, like experimental oh, live sick. shows with, with his, with some of his movies, like Metal Days, which is like long out of print. Yeah. No that's one the can one watch I really it. wanted to, to find and I couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. And it's impossible if you don't know someone with an original VHS. Um, but he'll show clips of that sometimes at performances. And that's some of the only places like you can see it unless you know one of like maybe 40 people with a VHS of metal days. Um, So he still does some of that shit. We should talk about 964 though. We've we've danced around it. Another another really interesting thing about that kind of tying into that anecdote there. um, Pretty much everyone involved with the making of this movie never made anything again outside of like appearing in some of Fukui's background stuff. Look, I'll own up to it. I'll admit it. I got like halfway through this movie and I was like, so this girl who plays Himiko, like, what else has she been in? I would like to see That's some of it. that stuff. Nothing. I've Tragic. Broke my heart. Yeah, I mean, this pops up so often where, like, clearly the only way these films are made. And it, it, I, Fukui did do some stuff. There were some, like, established actors in Rubber's Lover, which came out several years later. But mm. a lot of these films... Tetsuo notwithstanding, and I think a couple of the Ishii films had actors who went on to do big things. Like, you're literally just using, like, whoever will be in it, you know? And so a lot of these actors don't want to be actors. They're just, like, doing a solid for their Mm -hmm. friend, or maybe they're, like, in the performing arts community at Mm -hmm. that time, but, like, you know, maybe they're just a part of, like, an indie stage troupe. You know, yeah, like yeah. not Denchu wanting to Kozo be a film actor. was a lot like that when we talked about it. Denchu Kozo, yeah. People were working double duty on... Mm-hmm. the crew like you're holding a, a microphone or a light and can you hop in the scene and be a, a vampire yeah. yeah you run in you run into that a lot where it's like that director you know in retrospectives they'll have gone on to find success and they'll be like by the way who was that in your movie and they're like i ah, just a friend of a friend <laughs> it's like what, what, what where are they <laughs> like why aren't we talking to them you know like some of these people become iconic and yet their entire actual career is relegated to like 90 minutes yeah yeah and you wonder if it's like did being in this thing that was so like objectively gross, somewhat perverse, and like not made for the mainstream audience. If that was what turned them off from the concept of like making films, or if it was just it yeah. didn't perform, and therefore they didn't get more. Like nobody came calling. I guess after uh, I forget the actor's name, but after he was you know barfing and bleeding and melting on stage the whole time. I don't know. I don't know. He he, he retired almost immediately after this from acting and <laughs> and apparently works on a farm now. Just like called it quits on him. the whole movie making thing. Um, he he was at least in one other movie. He's in Metal Days. Yeah, oh, okay. I know that much. Uh, to shout it out now, uh, a lot of knowledge people in America might have, or in just in English speaking countries, of Fukui and his work 
comes from like literally one person and it's guy pierce not the director well actually <laughs> it, the guy pierce is a director he made a uh, sound of summer uh rope maiden and uh difficulty breathing but like small time english dude that lives in japan who's like a mega fukui fan and has spent most of his life like collecting this ephemera wow. like little one sheets and vhs's and everything do you think um, he's got like he, a, a mason jar full of the the actual like uh popcorn puke that they used on, on he might dude he's <laughs> he's crazy did now <laughs> he hosts well he hosts a podcast called show me something wrong with um uh dave jackson who directed uh oh, cat, yeah. sick Bl- cat sick blues which was like pretty popular a couple of years ago uh they did a metal days episode like two weeks ago i highly oh, wow. recommend because yeah, there's so many weird anecdotes about that movie and fukui because they like know they live in japan and guy and um fukui like know each other pretty well at this point so like that's I highly recommend it if you listen to this and want to know more about these weirdos. To, to, to finally get into 964 Pinocchio and a, a film that we've talked about here is gross and repulsive and off-putting. Another thing that really surprised me about it is its initial reception in Japan was like glowing and people were packing mm-hmm. into movie houses to see this thing, which is interesting to think about uh, when you look at the source, or not the source material, the content of the film. Uh-huh. Uh, it's hard to imagine people going apeshit as if they were watching Avengers Endgame, but that's that's what was happening. I, he was like, we could not book rooms big enough to get everyone who wanted to see this I, thing. I really hope that's true. Um, I, I do wonder if it's like, it was just the cultural response, like the counterculture, everybody was sick of yeah. seeing, you know, another rom-com or whatever was coming out in the 90s in Japan, you know, after the economic boom. I wonder if it was just like, this is something new and different. I'm going to, you know, fuck you, mom. I'm going out on a Wednesday to watch the Mario <laughs> Brothers movie at 12.01 a.m. This cool was their version of that. Yeah. <laughs> You hear you hear stories about this all the time, and it's like I don't know how you verify them, but like, uh, fucking um, what's his name? Diodato said Cannibal Holocaust like only came in second to ET when it, <laughs> when it played in Japan, and it's like what's going on over there? This is some wild movie viewing habits. If like these movies are blowing up that big, because in America, Nine Six Four has been seen by like us three. Yeah, that's right. And that's kind of it. <laughs> yeah, you've seen it now. You've seen it now twice. Have you, like, so I, I think... No, I only watched it the one time. Okay, so I've seen it now three times. I think that puts me in, like, a tier of maybe seven people on Earth, including that guy. Is <laughs> just that I've seen yeah. this movie, uh, uh, like, more than one time. Um, I, like, I don't know, where do you guys go from here in the conversation? Do you talk about, like, sequentially what happens? Uh, we're already 30 minutes in, and I feel like... Yeah, we've... you know, we, we usually try to interrogate the plot of these things, and, and it's difficult for a film like this, but mm-hmm. the, the setup of it basically is... Um, it's sort of a, you know, dystopian future, which would be familiar to anyone who's consumed any cyberpunk media at all. Who watched the uh, news today. Get them. <laughs> the, the intro kind of begins with this, like, cauldron of steam that was just super impressive. And it was sort of one of those things from frame one where I was like, I'm in, I'm in on whatever is going on here. Yeah. Um, you're getting flashes of, of these women having sex and cuts to this, like facility and a doctor the geppetto like figure perhaps even um, and you see here the pinocchio cyborg doll i'm gonna call him a doll for simplicity's mm-hmm. sake but you know he is basically a, a, a mechanical organism that has been created for the purpose of sexual pleasure by this kind of mad doctor and we see him getting his memories drilled out of his head big old tentacle um and then he's he's dragged out into the street and essentially thrown 
off on his own. And that's where the action of this film picks up. Um, I, I like the montage cutting in the opening. I think it's pretty disorienting mm. on mm-hmm. purpose and still giving you these unique little flavors of, you know, like we're talking about at the time, the Japanese cyberpunk movement isn't as defined even as it is today, but sort of there are these themes that overlap and things that make it distinct. Um, Fukui's putting his own little touches. I think he's really drilling down on the sexuality aspect of it, which is obviously present in Tsukamoto's work. Tetsuo, uh, the Iron Man, has a drill for a penis, for example. But yes, sir. it's never as like, what's the word I want to use? Lifelike, sort of realistic the elements of uh two two or three humans having sex being as like recognizable as they are in this Mm -hmm. film which is kind of you know it's almost a more grounded setup in that way it's not difficult to imagine uh on april 4th 2023 for example that some scientist out there is figuring out the way to make a very lifelike cybernetic doll uh for the sake of pleasure for example well, like if we're pushing the the limits of prescience here, there are real dolls. There are look, people go to porn sites, yeah. so just moving that forward. I've seen on a few <laughs> that the videos are compatible with certain um, fleshlights, mm. so they're compatible programmed... with the flesh. This so, isn't about like, the movie. you watch a video. With a certain flashlight that I don't know, you plug in with it's a like USB. It's like how you can you can download like a commentary track for a movie and then sync yeah, it up but and like start at the right time. The motion. Like so like if we're really bending the definition of prescience, I mean it's maybe not full animatronic robots like nine six four Pinocchio, but there are the 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 physical nature of the like intersection of sex and uh technology and the way it has gone beyond just like flashing images on a screen is like kind of here like we're here right now you know if you can plug your fucking fleshlight into your Mm. computer and i don't know zev bell ringer or whatever allegedly can control it (laughs) like it's crazy if you were someone who wanted to do that you could allegedly so i mean like I, it's hard to feel. It's hard to say Fukui probably knew that was going to happen, but mm-hmm. also until you build an actual robot that you can have sex with. Yeah, it's 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 te- like the simulacra is telling until you realize like the beginning of the plot is his failure. Like literally, he cannot mm-hmm. sustain the erection long enough to please. I think the character's name is Akko. Like the uh, she doesn't run a brothel. I don't think she's just really really horny. She just has two or three yeah. concubines with her at all times, uh, and that's what kicks us off. Is is like this character is 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 malfunctioning essentially, and nobody really knows it. I guess there's there's the plot element later on where Aka, where the uh, what is his name uh, Narishima, I think the Geppetto like character mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. is like pleading with this character with Akko, the one who previously bought this model Pinocchio to to just please her and once she's uh it, it, he's saying like where where is he he's she he's, he's he's if he's malfunctioning you do not know what you've released upon the world i guess it's just like yeah. that it's that moment that like i started i started to question like this character i guess it wasn't enough to like give him just bomb dick it was like he had to have also like nuclear skin and like a complete like an atom atom bomb punch i guess yeah that's yeah. like that's where the movie starts to take a turn is like those montages you were talking about uh aj there's a really happen in the first like jesus i'm forgetting even the pacing of this movie because it is a lot of just running and screaming but 
uh, those montages happen more frequently toward the beginning before he's like started to remember who he is. Yeah, you know, it's like, like a classic amnesiac setup. Mm-hmm. Um, and the scene after the sort of intro is basically him meeting uh, Ikumi, uh, just like stumbling upon her in the street. And then she walks him back to her kind of mm. like cyberpunk nest. There's a lot of walking in this movie, which I feel like we should yeah. just get into it now. Like, it's not a long movie, but when it was trying my patience or pushing up against me, it was those scenes where, which were just like, we're really sitting with these people walking between these locations or kind of being led, a la- led around aimlessly for what seems like several minutes at a time, which like I do appreciate. Um, my favorite scene in John Wick 4 is the like three minutes of Ian McShane just walking past all of those <laughs> paintings and his footsteps <laughs> echoing. But like in a movie like this where I... Even when the action is happening, I don't really know what's going on when we're like just transitioning between locations. I'm like, what's going on here and where are we going? I like the real sort of tight corridors in this section. Like everything feels so insulated and really just like claustrophobic in this Mm -hmm. industrial nest Mm -hmm. that she's built. I like I love the set design of that. It's probably the coolest set in the whole film. And we do spend a lot of time there. Yeah. Um, Go ahead, Blake. It's your podcast. One thing that stood out to me, like, as we have, you know, as as culture has wider conversations about the need for more, like, representation in media, I thought it was cool to watch a movie about a broke dick motherfucker. Just <laughs> the man, he had one job, and it was to stay hard 24-7. Right. Believe it's good it or not, to, he couldn't do it. It's good to see representation for all those dudes like me who can't fuck. <laughs> Like, what? What's his? What's the issue? And then what changes? Because the, the the rest of this first act or even half of the film is Hikumi trying to goad him to speak again, to mm-hmm. like interrogate his memories. This is happening concurrently with the hunt from the other characters that we set up. He like recruits some gangsters, yeah. and it's like the henchmen, there's a. Yeah doll who escaped go get them i like how they all wear the same outfit that was cute uh they go to the grocery store they go to the subway station she's like trying to reintegrate him into society and i'm understanding the purpose of all of this Mm -hmm. as it's you know being displayed on the screen but like what happened to this little doll man i mean i think the the particulars of it are unimportant it's just rather that it did happen like he was created for a function and the function didn't work and then that therein sets that that sets forth the plot the actual like hows and whys of why pinocchio is not functioning i think are important i do think uh interesting himoko is that her name himiko yeah yeah she um she is i believe she also is somewhat of an amnesiac because she makes maps for people who have lost their memory to find their way around that's Mm -hmm. how we first meet her as she's drawing a map and that's that's how she stumbles upon pinocchio sorry and that's such a good way to like establish her character is yeah like what happens to these characters before the events of the movie sort of unfold over the course of it but to your point aj like what happens Mm -hmm. near the middle there i mean she i guess i'm getting ahead of myself Uh, himiko is this character who can who is like she's dedicated herself in the absence of her own memory she's dedicated herself to like helping others who also just have lost their way memory mm. or whatever and we don't see her interact with many of those people just more yeah. with with Pinocchio himself because he's like apparently the maybe worst case scenario of something like that like he is a babbling baby by the time that he meets her he literally just tries to lay down and suckle while she's sitting in the yeah. you know, at what, what yeah. is that where is that with um 
with the dog statue from uh, uh oh that's uh shibuya yeah, shibuya crossing uh wonderful scene but um so she like is his little uh, again we're gonna get into the twisted t reed uh his little um uh, jiminy cricket yeah. is gonna like bring him back to consciousness bring him back to self-awareness and it's like it's that i think that becomes and this is on my second and third watch because the first watch is just absorb uh second and third or like understand i think with this movie um she sort of like the closer he gets to self-awareness like he has he has doesn't even have the power of speech when we first meet him in the movie she sort of teaches him how to say his own name that very quickly de- develops into like full uh fluency apparently with with japanese but yeah once he once he Pinocchio. regains <laughs> it, it one syllable at a time man i'll get there um <laughs> she she like sort of goads him into learning uh relearning language that gives him a sense of self-awareness and before he can really like act on that like that self-awareness spurs in him what he actually is, which is like in the last act, we learned that he's actually like not just a sex robot. He's also been given these crazy, maybe psychokinetic yeah, powers. He's yeah. dragging like a ton of stone through the city. He's uh, blasting people with, again, a nuclear fist. It's it's nuts how like that so cleanly coincides with like the recognition of the self. And in that exact moment. When he starts to like melt and like literally transform, he's got these pustules and shit. Uh, Himiko is like just panicking in her little hutch and she just she's pinned up against the wall. And there's this momentary flashback to her with a with a syringe. I think it's full of blood or yeah. something. She's uh, like, it's like, like a, a nurse, too. Yeah, exactly. And and it's like and then she goes wild. She like her eyes yeah. light up. It's that that face that will never lose and leave my mind. Her eyes light up. Her teeth are like just completely crazed. And then she goes for her. Uh, for her quick bathroom break in the middle of the of the subway, but she yes, sir. and 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 we and we can get that in a sec. But I think it's like that exact moment is like if there is a single plot point that matters at all in this movie, it's that moment when she yeah. like he gains self awareness, she yeah. also does, and together they just like lose their minds and only regain them at the very very end, which I guess we can get to eventually. But uh, I, two things I want to interrogate there before we get yeah, to yeah. to Pukarama, like. Please. The, the sense that I was getting, too, is that, as it's implied through the shot you're talking about, I think she, if if she's not a cyborg herself, which I can't fully rule out, like, obviously has that implied history, and, and that is sort of why she's drawn to characters like Pinocchio and whatnot. The, mm-hmm. the beginning of this, the scene where we meet her, she's just, like, looking through binoculars. Like, she's truly just sitting there in the middle of the street, and a guy comes, like, a, a pervy guy comes up to her and is like, hey, how much? And she's like, be gone. Um, and, and there's this like sort of supernatural sense that Pinocchio stumbles onto her path for for reasons that neither of them will understand. And then charting their entire journey, it's not difficult to sort of see the the cyberpunk theme of like, you know, ascending to the next stage of humanity or, or reaching mm-hmm. godhood or whatever, which is like literally the ending of Akira, basically. But it's interesting to see Pinocchio's journey um, and with the character being named Pinocchio from like rejection to uh, infancy we chart his very quick journey through the boring parts of humanity learning to talk living your life etc etc and then by the end of the film which is like a really powerful final image is he's this sort of new singular being in the world and the implications are like we've you know something has yeah. changed here mm-hmm. on the planet earth <laughs> i don't know if this is trying me like subconsciously trying to shrug off having a deeper critical reading of movies like this but I, I really appreciate knowing the like historical background of how and why these films are made. But the actual themes and plots of them, I never 
truly care about interrogating when a movie is like just kind of this um i don't know if avant-garde is the right experimental avant-garde yeah yeah yeah. yeah. it's more the way i like looking at them is from a like visceral sense like almost like each scene is its own vignette and it's like how do I feel while watching this? What yeah. is the anxiety I feel or the the humor I feel rather than being like, okay, so like what was the point of Himo- he- Himiko? Himiko? What was the point of the two characters, you know, running into each other? Like I, yeah. I just find myself, it, 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 it's not, a, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about it. Like I'm not like trying to like look down my nose at you all. I guess like personally, like that's not what I find interesting about watching these movies is rather like how do the individual moments like hit me because i think Mm. like these films work best almost detached from some of the deeper readings because i also doing is really grasping at any recognizable straw right and that's what's so interesting about a film like this is that it is overwhelming you on purpose and then what you're left with are these like blown apart fragments of any story or theme you can try to piece together if you want to the film's not like did you, you know, it's not assigning you homework, like doing a puzzle yeah. of being like, you have to grab this flashback and that scene. And there's a character in the background. When you put all those together, you answer uh, what the film was trying to say. It's really just sort of like, I, here's a bunch of shit. How are you reacting to it? Uh, yeah. And, and I do really, <laughs> I do really like, and this is like true of a lot of like, I mean, we just got done doing a fucking season on New French Extremity, which like, you know, we, we pushed back really hard. I'm boiling it down to a bunch of gross movies. And it's like, no, there was clearly something political going on. There was clearly something in the fucking water that made these movies come Mm. out. And so, like, you have to look at the Japanese cyberpunk genre and be like, clearly something was happening that led to this. And, you know, all these movies may be saying different things or have different ideas about different aspects of, like, culture and society in Japan. Right. But, like, the hows and whys to why this had to happen and why it was so, like, such a shotgun blast I find really interesting. And I think, like, you know, I'm no fucking historian, you know, or economist, (laughs) but, like, you you do notice a lot of these movies are coming out right as the the bubble is bursting. And you know you're you're entering that uh that lost decade where historically you know the youth of Japan were kind of just like figured out fuckos and it's like okay so how does nine six four fit into that you know how does how does like Sukumoto's work which predates this by you know a few years if not a decade where does that fit into it I think that's like where I'm kind of fascinated by it and then it's like you know and then just feeling the raw aggression from the films or it's like i could analyze narratively why she's puking for 20 minutes or i could look at it and be like not much to think about someone's mad and grossed out and maybe has a fetish <laughs> you know and it's like that's, i think it, that's the bit, i think that, this movie has a section where it's like you know shut your brain off uh it's the the puke section it, look i am as someone who's seen more than one fetish film in his life I think Fukui has a, a vomit thing because <laughs> it's in a lot of his he, fucking movies. Like, like four minutes of his 10-minute short film, uh, Gerarist. Yeah. Gerarist. You can call Gerarist. it Vomit Terrorist if it's easier. Yeah. <laughs> vomit Terrorist, that, that is easier. Um, literally four minutes of that is is one single shot of her throwing up. I think she's got like a hose in her wrist or something. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 nuts how much they focus on that. I Like, I take another approach where like i mm. really do like and like pulling apart as best i can like sort of how these pieces interact narratively that but yeah. like 
I think that's what's beautiful. Like Blake, or excuse me, Blake, AJ was saying about like how this movie does not for, yeah, I, I know two white guys, go figure. I'm going to call one of you. Can't Jason eventually. Um, <laughs> that's they call podcast. You're like my grandma. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Grandma's Nintendo. always calling me the wrong name. <laughs> um, is it like it refuses to like foist that upon you again like my first time watching this movie and i'm not saying like oh wisdom with time or whatever like you will get what you get out of it no matter when you watch it i was like damn really sucks that himiko was a bad guy all the time and now i have a very different feeling about like i felt a certain betrayal of like this character was supposed to be helping along his journey and i feel like now that i've watched it again a couple of times i have a greater understanding of maybe what they're doing with that Mm -hmm. but like it is those moments we've sort of arrived naturally at a conversation about the vomit scene where again there's like I mean, maybe 20 minutes. Is it 20 minutes, 20 full minutes of this woman walking through a subway, barfing, literally just barfing? I, I and think then it's closer it and to 10 it? than 20 because there is a lot of like preamble and, and stammering around. There's sort of a fake out earlier, too. You know, I, I was I was forewarned watching this film because as we as we sort of set up, uh, Blake texted me the link to the Blu-ray and said, just buy this. Don't read anything about it, which I did because he's my friend and I trust him, which, you know, I, st- I still <laughs> do, move. believe it or not. Um, <laughs> And then, and then my second warning was like, okay, I'm going to watch this thing. And he for our episode, and he said, okay, don't eat while you're doing it. And I was like, that's an ominous thing, considering like the movies that I have uh, eaten during as for this show. But uh, th- he's like, let me know when you get to the subway scene, right? And so y- they visit this this subway station beforehand, um, and there's kind of the walkthrough, and I, I'm I'm getting myself perked up. I'm ready to I'm ready to see where it goes. And it kind of just like I think that's when they go to the grocery store for the first time. And I was like, okay, I didn't really see that there. Um, but what, what sets this up is as she's trying to sort of goad him back into his memories, he has some sort of a breakthrough, he disappears on her, and then she is is walking around the subway station looking for him. And again, just incredible filmmaking on display here where her POV is frenetic, she's really confused, she wants to find him, she's lost, the camera is just like zooming around this subway station with the sort of... Uh, What's the, like the verite style, basically. Mm-hmm. It's shot at like hip level, sort of. And you're kind of just going through as if you're, you know, someone walking around this crowded subway station. We stick with that for a while. And she's going through this breakdown. I think we're here getting flashes to some of those things Jason was talking about where it's like we're getting these brief, like they're they're basically shots of color, all you can discern. But like, you know, meant to be her history or whatever it is that she's repressed. And then. She's going into the bowels of the subway station, and it and it starts to come out slowly, but <laughs> it's the most what, distinct kind of unknowable vomit I've ever seen in a movie. It's like a white pudding that yeah. has the texture of popcorn. Is the only way I can describe it. It's it, like cream I think of wheat. To, yeah, I think a good way to set the 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 uh, set the expectations of the listener is to one say Fukui is. Uh, very influenced by possession. Yeah. Which. Oh yeah. Uh, if you if you'll if you've seen that movie, there's a famous subway scene where Isabel Ajani uh, has a miscarriage of uh, Nickelodeon gack. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Truly, something there's else. there's another Europe, visual callback to that yeah. at the end of the film too. Did y'all catch that? The uh, no. Yeah, there definitely is. Um, when they when they defeat the sort of antagonists in the field the woman's like posed exactly like ajani is not that sort of like mess of liquid on oh the floor. cool I didn't As think about, you know, i'm possession pilled when i see it I, I call it i i love possession i mean that 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 scene in the subway i saw with aj for the first time and i literally thought i was gonna have a panic attack watching <laughs> it for the very first time um 
I this the the subway scene just like completely, sh- in my opinion, shit on possession it's, subway it's, scene. This it's is like uh, it, it's less focused on the performance. It's more like again, like AJ was saying, it's it's a like a one kind of camera angle throughout most of these shots. There's not like a whole lot of inf- yeah. we've talked about how creative some of the shooting is. Not a whole lot of inventiveness in how they shoot this woman just throwing up her guts for ten minutes. It really is just like you're gonna see it again, and then from another angle, you're gonna see more, and she's gonna be on the stairs, and she's yeah. gonna be doing the same thing. And it really is. I'm going to say it's a test and I'm going to say that in like a very positive, like, Hey, it's a challenge, challenging cinema or whatever, but it really is very much. I think aligned rather than just an aesthetic, which I don't think you could blame uh, possession for adopting that as an aesthetic Mm -hmm. more than an aesthetic. It's like, this is the experience of the movie is how far you can go with how far you will, you will last before this sort of like starts to feel pointless. I, I yeah, I've got it pulled up in, in another window here. It's from it's from about twenty seven to forty two minutes, so it's fifteen <laughs> oh minutes basically fifth, on the dot. Musicless, just all real people seemingly in the subway watching this woman. Like, it, it, you you ever see those uh, those videos? I think it's Vic Berger who makes them, uh, where it's like. Uh, Jim, what's his name? The the televangelist guy with the buckets of slop that are supposed to keep you alive. That like <laughs> yeah. the like prepper stuff. It looks like that. It's literally just slimy and 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 like solid chunky. It's really it's really great. It's uh it's cinema. I think. Yeah. To to Jason's point, like I really like the idea sometimes of art as an endurance test for the viewer, and that's I mean that's what's going on here. Yeah. It's like can you sit through this? If you can, great. Like, you get to see the next scene. If you can't, well, we're weeding thin- thinners of the herd. You know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> the other thing that makes me really respect this scene is just, like, the public nature of it. Like, they did not shut down a subway. Like, this woman literally, like, that's, as far as I'm concerned, like, you can look at this as just be like, ooh, that's nasty. She puked and ran around screaming. Or you can kind of see it as, like, really world-class acting to be able to maintain that level of commitment to the character and like Mm -hmm. i don't think it's all shot in a single take but like the fact that she was able to do that in front of people and not be like i mean i'm sure she was humiliated to some degree but the fact that she was able to deliver upon that i think makes this like a very impressive feat of like acting from as we've established, a person who is not necessarily an actor in the professional or if, traditional if, sense. Yeah. If they point a camera at you and they're like, you know, okay, for the next 15 minutes or however long they're shooting this, you're having an out-of-body experience. Again, that's a thing that's like pretty difficult to convincingly yeah. fake. And mm-hmm. like watching it for the first time, not knowing where it's going, I'm just kind of, again, throwing my hands up and being like, yeah, something is happening here. This doesn't look good. I would hate for this to happen to me. Yeah, and I mean, you're not watching it, her performance going like, oh, this is cheesy, this is corny. You're like, you're kind of like enraptured by it because she is giving it her all. You're, you're and it's like the fact she's... You probably it's very che- Yeah, very cheesy and very corny, though. I'm sure that they use both of those in, in the sure. moment. Um, I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm, I'm, blown, right. I'm blown away that, uh, that Fukui, I'm assuming maybe he cast or whoever his casting director was, found two people like that between Garyst and this, like... I think you probably could have cast the lead from Garyst into yeah. this movie, and like it's—I'm not going to say it's the same part, but they're doing very similar things and puke very queens, like, yeah, bright. <laughs> we, we've got our scream queens now. We have puke our puke queens. queens. <laughs> it, we're like they are unafraid to just do the most batshit hot girl summer shit in the world in very public in like wildly public spaces. I was uncomfortable with it, and like you said, it's, it's a bit of an endurance test. Um, mm-hmm. We we get through we get through that scene. 
and we are on full like everybody's out to get Pinocchio time. Yeah, All I the mean, henchmen, <clears throat> and she's helping them. Yeah, I, I haven't really said it, and and it's a good point to transition into this. Um, I think she, the actress, uh, it's it's Oni Onchan. I think she's my favorite part of this film, like by oh, far. Yeah. I think her performance, yeah. even in the first half before this puking scene, is just really compelling and like feels sweet as they're trying to discover or help each other. And then so to kind of move us forward into it, I'm a little disappointed that she's not as much of a part of the second half of the film as she mm. is the first half of the film. We kind of do basically just get like the whole city trying to find him. There's that scene in like the big garbage dump where she's sort of betraying she like is telling him that she betrayed him or was lying to him or set him up and and again not like super clear and i think the movie maybe if it's not important maybe dedicates like too significant of a scene to that because then Mm -hmm. it's basically just pinocchio like running for his life out of control as the the gangsters and she are trying to hunt him down um Mm -hmm. so i'm a little i'm a little frustrated that they kind of dropped that narrative ball there because i really appreciated their relationship and it is so important to it but yeah the kineticism of the last hour of this movie is just unstoppable it is crazy someone someone needs to go track down uh on chan and uh be like what's up what you been up to the past 25 years <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna track her down and say will you marry me <laughs> i have so many I, questions I was, about I was, the making was, of this movie well we were watching this movie in blake's apartment and she gets to the vomiting scene and maybe two minutes in clearly like he knows what's happening and he knows it's not ending anytime soon he just says, oh, wife. <laughs> the man says wife while this woman is is just letting her guts out look, on the floor. Look, here's the thing. I'm no longer interested in hiding my freakish behavior. Vommy mommy. <laughs> Vommy mommy is Vommy here mommy for time. me. I... Vommy mommy, pick me up. I want to go home. <laughs> what, <laughs> pick me do, up and... what do we like uh, through the finale of this movie? What sticks out? Because I, I think... Him running through the fucking crowd of a thousand people. Oh, my Lord. It's like a Those slow chains, transformation, yeah. but it's the it's the indelible image of this film. Uh, he's He's covered in this like nuclear gas i liked the setup of that where they were <laughs> yeah. like this is a nuclear strength gas like you know one little capsule of it is enough to kill any person and they bring out the big fucking gun um <laughs> they go to the last the nest the lair they try to ice him uh he just reacts in the worst way possible and now he's painted white from head to toe chained to the wall busts out like the hulk is dragging this big triangular chunk of rock throughout tokyo in the daytime which is the most impressive bit of this and like if you're not just watching this being like, how did they film this? How does this exist? How is it still like legal for me to watch this in such crisp mm-hmm. 1080p on my PlayStation 5 in my home? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know what to tell you. This is this is cinema. Man, can you imagine how lame it would be if they had even a single like actual paid actor in the crowds of these movies? Like oh, if you know, could tell right? that anybody was like <gasps> shockingly reacting never, to anything. I would have burned your copy of it. My copy wouldn't have been punk anymore. <laughs> it's it just been cyber. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, the, there's an interesting quote that Fukui had about Garist vomit terrorist about doing the public scenes. And granted, that was you know came out six years before nine six four. But like you have to imagine some of it might be still be the same. But the um, the the interviewer who I believe is. Oh, it's not uh, Tom Mess. It's Johannes Schoenherr. Uh It's basically like, hey, it must have been hard having the actress go literally attack people in the streets. 
And Fukui, I'm paraphrasing, is like, no, actually, at the time, street performers had become really popular in Japan, so people were just kind of into it. And I wonder, even though this was like six years later, actually, I think it took them like three years to film 964 or something, because it was in everyone's spare time and had to pay for film. Anyway, I wonder if they were still, that's how they were getting away with a lot of this, is like, at the time, granted, I'm going off a you know, 10 to 15 year old quote on a right. Japanese film blog. But it's like, if that's how they were getting away with it, you start to wonder, it's like, were they just like really taking advantage of a weird kind of movement on the streets of Japan where it's like, yeah, just there's some freaks going around right now, but they're harmless. So whatever. He, you know? he did talk about in the interview that I watched that like, it was a thing that when you were a filmmaker in in Tokyo that you could kind of get away with pretty easily of just being like, yeah, we're going to film the thing in broad daylight. Like people were, were cool with that. Yeah. I mean, in the me in the Mike book, he talks uh, that Tom Mess wrote the first one, like he, Mike talks pretty extensively about like them just being like, we're not going to get permits. So we're just going to go shoot this on the street, you know? And those are like studio pictures, which Feels even crazier to be like you have a whole team there that you have are doing this shit with. Yeah, but maybe I don't know enough about the art, the art of filmmaking or like distribution. But does it not feel weird to anybody else that like nobody would come after them after the fact? Like you released this movie and you had no permits. You, fuck you. you I, gu- don't I guess make it's sort of like this, you know. Uh, well, we can't stop you now. <laughs> yeah, forgiveness, yeah. not permission, kind of thing. Uh, it, it's it's funny that the crowd scenes that they shot in public are so compelling because uh, there's an actor later in the film who I noticed when when they're shooting uh, one of the last fight scenes is is meant to be like screaming in the background and is just sitting there with his mouth open in the same shot for like 45 seconds straight. <laughs> and I was just like, I immediately clocked that and was like, oh, oh, brother. Yeah. Um. I like at the end of the film where he shoots 964 running as if it's like the craziest car chase of all time. Yeah. Like Just constant going. Well, yeah. Once he gets on that bit uh, where he's like identified the facility and oh. is, is headed there and they're like, 964 is coming. Like whatever they say, they're like, call the army. You, you need to stop this man. Um, and it's important to set up that someone's eating a big bowl of cherries and also the largest glass of milk in human history. Hell yes. But uh. the the shot of him just like running through that field like he's got this like cloud of steam coming from behind him. But it's just the big fucking rock that he's he's dragging. I mean, that shit rocks. That was very it's, good. It's like Looney Tunes. It's, yeah. It's bizarre. Like there's very little actual like I think um like temporal stimulation. Like I don't think they've sped up or slowed down a whole lot of this movie. Maybe a few shots. But mostly it's just like the way that the camera is moving through physical space. Blake talked about that shot earlier where he's running toward the camera. And it's kind of like you almost like shoulder check the character as you're Mm -hmm. going. The camera is zooming forward in somebody's hand and the character is zooming like toward the lens in in, like the other half of the frame. And we just kind of keep going maybe for a couple of seconds to just show like his wake, like where he has been with very little special effects. I'd like it is a bizarre way to ramp up to that bizarre ending which i ended up really like loving it's sort of like the uh getting their comeuppance the bad guys sort of they're uh they're like like aj was setting up they're all like gathered they're uh we have like they've been setting up the foregrounding on those cherries and milk is so fucking good because what ends up happening is pinocchio ends up like uh sort of yelling at them and screaming like why have you forsaken me kind of thing like i am your creation you got to help me uh, I cl- you clearly did not prepare me for what this life was going to be like. I am now a nuclear weapon, and I was only being used for sex. And they're all saying the only way that we can help you is to kill you. The only like, there's no redeeming you. 
and he decides to, of course, kill them out of rage and frustration and like a lack of knowledge of his own power, punches through one of their guts and just cherries spill out this mix of it looks like cordials, just just the second grossest thing <laughs> in the movie it's so fucking good because like then it's comedy in that moment it is comedy but again there's no music there's very little sound effects there's like minimal uh, dialogue i think the entire script for this movie is like 20 pages long maybe i was like, honestly shocked to learn that they they had a screenplay that they were working off of i i wonder if they i wonder if they did or if they were making it up because there are so many parts like from the shooting to the like the plot motion to like what actually ends up affecting the way the movie moves is it all feels extemporaneous almost like that shot mm-hmm. that scene you were talking about where um where Himiko is sort of leading uh, sort of just like berated flogging him and flogging Pinocchio in the street and like dumping garbage on his head and shit that goes on I'll say like even if somebody really likes the movie objectively goes on too long it oh, just like that is a running theme in this movie of, of scenes that just like refuse to end and no, it becomes it becomes part of the point I, I, I think that's good. <laughs> yeah. To be clear, I think that's good. I think it totally works yeah. here. But it is like, that's like another 10-minute scene where we just see, and it sort of feeds into what you were saying earlier, AJ, about um, how like you wanted to, uh, like you were slightly disappointed that Himiko didn't become a bigger, wasn't a bigger part in the second half. Like after that scene, she kind of has minimal screen time until the very, very end. I think that is sort of, it almost if there's one thing that I had to say, it almost it is bad. Like it almost feels wasted that we've spent so much time, like getting used to this character and then learning that she's actually not what she seems. And then we just really make her a heel for that yeah. long scene. And then toward the end, I think there's a redemption of it. Like only in like recognizing the uh, rage and trauma, as Jamie Lee Curtis says, the rage right. and trauma of this, uh, of these two characters coming together and like realizing it and sort of overthrowing the masters that made them sort of thing. Only in that can they find commonality and like, like, again, you know, uh, in a very cyberpunk way, sort of transcend the humanity that they were given. And then the movie ends. But well, like, well, she she accepts her truth. And that is I can rip off my human face and reveal like a big kind of moon man mask, which is sick as fuck. T- tell it me looks that you saw, so good. Tell me that you saw even like one percent of that coming, and I will like I will drive to wherever you live and shoot you. And like, nobody <laughs> can tell what is going to fucking happen in that scene. And I loved that. I still love it. Yeah, the, what a flick, man! Like, I I, I want to like talk about the kind of final shot and the note that the film en- ends on because I love it so much. Which is like, yeah, they kind of reunite and like literally bond together, and then you have. Pinocchio wearing her head kind of standing in front of the Tokyo tower, the film cuts. And then over the credits, we're getting like scenes of them both as humans at some bar, like partying, throwing back shots. And I don't know if that's just like footage from the rap party or if it's meant to mean more, but it just like gives such a like poignancy to this film. It sent me out on a really like great note. Yeah. Yeah. I I, like the, the way that the movie like I think in that last scene, it's really interesting that once she tears off her own face, throws it at him, she pulls out, he pulls off her head, puts it on his own. They become like one creature, one god, basically. Literally, uh, it's those two characters' voices. They're speaking in sort of unison. Mm-hmm. They're saying just like, it feels so good to be with you. They're looking up at Tokyo Tower toward the heavens. It's like a very strangely peaceful, like optimistic note. And I guess that I don't know, honestly, if that post ending scene with them you know the shots of them at, at some club i don't know if that was in the original youtube rip that i saw I yeah think i'd, be, might sh- have just I'd been be surprised or i wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't like but it is yeah it's it's 
the tonal whiplash toward just toward the end, I think it's sort of what makes it. You've made it through all the way of this movie. And it's like, I know that this is an incredibly, because it raises way more questions than it really answers. I don't know if it's rewarding, so to speak, but it is a relief mm-hmm. in a way. It's bizarre to think that something that's strange and off off guard, whatever I'm trying and to say. That. And it's romantic kind of in its own way. Like it, it, oh, is, yeah. a, the, it is a happy ending. The mm-hmm. ending is reminiscent of Tetsuo. The metal fetishists and the salary man come together and they say our love will destroy the fucking world. It's kind of in love. It's kind of the same. Yeah, the They're so it, in love. The finale is really like just vibing with Tetsuo very similarly. There's mm-hmm. a lot of overlap yeah. there. Um but it is it is distinct enough and like absolutely worth a watch. I think it's it's pretty I'll, important to note that it is it feels as totemic or if it should feel as totemic as Tetsuo. In my yeah. I'll say like they're both as good as each other. I'll commit a cinema sin. Oh, <gasps> I'll say uh, I think I like this movie leagues more than Tetsuo. Okay, uh, I like Tetsuo just fine, but as I've said before, I think it's one of Sukumoto's least interesting movies. Like from a technical craft sense, it's pretty fascinating and like impressive that he made that, or he didn't make it alone. But you know what I mean. Um, under such limitations, but I think he's created way better films. I think this movie is like the just gold standard of the genre. Um, and there's still a few I haven't seen. Um, but of the big ones I've seen, like 964 just like knocks it out of the fucking park. Um, I think it would be a bigger film if it wasn't lost for so long to licensing hell. Yeah. Which like, I, I don't know the, the full story of that. I know there's like a weird repeat in history and of unearthed getting the American rights to something and then it just like languishing for decades mm-hmm. after and it's like even unearthed isn't able to put it out. So I don't know what seems to happen when unearthed licensed Japanese films that they just disappear for twenty years after that initial is run. This, uh, is this, but is I this think Blu-ray like brand new that Yeah, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. It just came out like literally. Um and it was like it was like a big deal when it was announced because it had been like out of print in america for decades yeah um, it was literally like what the fuck who who cares enough about this movie to put it back yeah. out again on like 1080p yeah i, I wish yeah. i could remember I, what think, it was. I think it was the last time it was issued i was reading was like a double featured dvd with with something that else. was the that was the unearthed one they put out rubber's lover okay and yeah. um and this and um i can't remember which had which but one of them had Vomit Terrorist as a special feature. The other had Caterpillar, which is mm. one of his other shorts. That's Caterpillar also is on fucking the Blu-ray. Nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Caterpillar is really rad. That's on YouTube. I watched that uh, a few weeks ago. I really hope we get enough critical mass behind this like release to get more of it because it doesn't seem like there's not much to Fukui's filmography to like. We could have we have a fucking Tsukamoto. Not to say like oh you should mm-hmm. take the left hand to you know Tsukamoto's right hand and like put them all out but it sounds like there's enough like 4000 I mean, so logs on letter I'm, I'm I, this isn't market research but logs on letterbox right. of this movie alone it is his most popular it is the one that's gotten the most critical attention in the last 10 years i feel like there is like we're on the cusp of something great if just one person has the right conversation with the right film distributor you can pretty we easily might... bundle all of his stuff that's I, accessible yes. together yeah and the majority of his stuff hasn't come to america Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's, you can like find illegal rips of them. A lot of them, like Caterpillar. Well, granted, those have had official releases, but uh, what is it? Hentai Land. You can find, but it's like not subtitled. Like it's just you can the, find uh, Hentai Japanese Land. Where? Release. So you, so you just have to, you just have to watch Hentai. Oh, uh, dude, I want to watch. Saying, huh? I want to watch Hentai Land so bad. It's like Sounds a, like it's hell. like a quasi documentary he made. Yeah. Um, featuring Koei Chan. 
which is an idol shop clerk of the large manga shop Mandarake. I want to see it so mm. fucking bad. It looks so rad. Uh, Jason, remember we pulled it up for a moment at my house on a really shady a website. Fle- <laughs> a fleeting moment. Uh, yeah. Re- really everything but that video screen was just the most grotesque yeah. pornography you could imagine. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I haven't gone back to that one, but like, that would be cool to see more of his stuff. Um, plug again to uh, our shouts out again to the, the boys that do show me something wrong. They were talking that Fukui is re-editing Metal Days for a new release. The issue seems to be a licensing around one of the songs. I think one of the bands that was featured ended up blowing the hell up in Japan. Mm. And so, like, they can't license that. But apparently the cut he's doing now is, like, what is it? Uh, Oh, of course, Letterboxd isn't going to say how long it is. But or, Or 60 minutes. Apparently the cut he's doing now is, like, half that. So he's, like, completely Whoa. re-editing it, and it's like, maybe we'll just never see the 60-minute version unless mm. we go yeah. find someone with a VHS. But there is a future where, like, more Fukui stuff might come out. Yeah, and Fingers God, crossed. I hope so. To, to, to kind of, like, close the, the book on that, it's, it's interesting for as influential a genre as this Japanese cyberpunk movement was to consider how condensed all of this stuff was coming out together, mm-hmm. and then how, like inaccessible a, a big chunk of it remains like it's so it's it's so popular sorry. And, and it's it's sorry sorry <laughs> this is podcasting i'm done it, it's changing though because like you know i mean tetsuo has been around forever the asian yeah. tart tartan releases and arrow did a release um a lot of the sogo ishi cyberpunk stuff is coming out um just recently i i think arrow had done like burst city and um, the second one that he did in the 80s. But one of them, it might have been Third Window. Someone just released his like final cyberpunk film, which is the one that came out like late 90s, early 2000s. Starring uh, Electric uh, Dragon 80,000. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of like the last, last cyberpunk film. That just recently got a big release. I think it's through Third Window. Um, I think it's Arrow, actually. But, I found it's on it's on oh, their okay. UK website. Yeah. But, but I was oh, like, okay, I cool. was about to buy that an hour ago <laughs> yeah i mean that has daddy of region free in it tadano asano tadano asano in it um so like a lot of them are getting more accessible i think death powder is a big missing one right now uh crazy thunder road is one that i want to track down that's yeah so i think arrow also did that one i think oh yeah but fukui is the big missing one right now i think because you can still get k fujiwara stuff through uh synapse i believe they released her stuff. So it's out there. You just kind of have to know about it. But it's mm-hmm. also like been released by all these disparate different companies over the last 20 years. And some are a little more accessible than others. Some are in better quality than others. But point being, Fukui is the big missing link in a, a lot of his filmography, just not making it over here yet. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a lot of great recommendations. I, I want to call it another, just one other movie I thought of about a lot when I was watching this, which was... Uh, like George Lucas's first film, THX 1138, oh. which is like oh, yeah, interesting. kind of, it's not like fully cyberpunk, but dystopian themed and people are wearing white all the time. And, you know, for someone who uh, would end up influencing a lot of sci-fi in one way or another, like what's in THX 1138, uh, whenever you watch it, even you can kind of recognize those themes and that stuff coming back around. I, I think it's also just kind of has a very distinct visual palette that especially... Uh, by the end of Pinocchio's transformation here, I was like, I wonder if that was like a conscious callback because the characters are just like mm-hmm. draped in white the whole time. I have recommendations. Hit me. 
well, obviously, vomit terrorist Garoist. Can you? Can we just put a link to the YouTube video? Yeah, probably. In the description <laughs> for that one. Watch that. It's ten minutes long. Watch Caterpillar also on YouTube. I think if you just YouTube shows in, if Fukui, you type shows it, in it'll YouTube, in. it'll all pop up. Yeah. Um, Organ by Kei Fujiwara, who is probably most well known as the uh, leading lady in Tetsuo the Iron Man. She was also Sukumoto's right hand creative person she was at in that Denshu time. Kozo, yeah. She's in Dinchukozo as well. Yeah, uh, we've talked about her a lot on this podcast. That's her first film. I don't think it's particularly great, but I think it's endlessly fascinating. It is also stomach-churningly gross. She is, for as wonderful and sweet as a lady as she seems to be, she runs like a uh, an animal rescue sanctuary now in the mountains of Nagano, Japan. She also makes some deeply fucking gross movies. There's like um, a good well, box she... set of all of her stuff, right? No, so she only has two films. But uh, Oregon was included in uh, Asia Extreme box set with, I believe, Entrails of a Virgin. And I can't remember the other one, but she only did one of those. Entrails of a Virgin? What is this, my prom night? (laughs) That's right. Um, Jesus. (laughs) Uh, But that one and her other film, Id, which is like somewhat unfinished, somewhat just thrown together with like older material. Those are both easily defined on dvd and then the last recommendation is if you ever find your sweet ass in japan <laughs> in the higashinakano na- neighborhood there is a bar called tv bar kimori that is run by shozen fukui oh, and yeah. you can go to his bar and he shows movies there he sometimes shows his own movies he also just shows random films uh you can follow him on twitter at tv bar kimori uh, K-E-M-U-R-I. I've not been to his bar. Uh, I am really familiar with that neighborhood. It's an amazing neighborhood. That's where like hardcore chocolate is and Nakano Broadway is near there. So any weeb will probably already fucking end up out there. But you can go just see Shozen Fukui himself. Uh, he does not hide the fact that he's the dude. He just is running a bar out there. Maybe with his wife. I'm not entirely sure. Um, and I don't know. I don't want to speak for him. I've never met the man. But I'm sure he would kind of get a kick out of a Anybody who goes and like, hey, cool movies, can I have a beer? <laughs> you know? So there you go. Shouts out to him. Follow TV Bar Kimori, K-E-M-U-R-I, on Twitter. And he tells what movies he's going to show and what albums he's going to be playing at the bar that night. That's cool. It's pretty sick. Yeah. I wonder if he just goes down into his basement and keeps editing Metal Days then. like Okay, so there's... On his off hours. So seek out the Show Me Something Wrong podcast about Metal Days. But what they were saying is... It's been taking him a while to get to the edit because it was shot on, you know, an old format, like it's shot on film and all this. And the equipment, editing equipment he needed broke, but it's this old, old equipment. So he had to like track down like a company that could even fix it, which was really hard. And it set the whole process back. There's a really good deep dive into like the state of metal days in that podcast. Also, they frequently make jokes on that show that they only have one listener, which I think might just be me. Like, if that's a literal <laughs> joke. Um, so please go listen to them because that podcast is fucking. Yeah, I want to awesome. see that fucking movie. Man. It sounds rad. Yeah, it yeah, they have a great episode about it. Jason, any recommendations? Uh, well, we already mentioned Possession. See Possession. Um, mm-hmm. That is uh, a classic in its own right. And listen to the episode of my podcast that Hell Blake yeah. joined for 
Uh, it's called Try Love. You can find an episode. It was the first of the year in 2022 uh, because they played that. it. They played it New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, 2022. Uh, no, I saw it late December. I think it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Whatever. New Year's Eve is in late December, Blake right, Hester. Right, 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 um, right, right. And if you've got, I won't say like stomach. It, it's pretty foul, but Midori, a 1992 anime. Uh, it's like a maybe 30, 45 minute anime like OVA um, based on a manga. It's pretty fucking gross. It's a circus. Uh, a young girl oh. gets abducted by a circus group and it's just full of the most foul characters you can imagine. Nobody's yeah. worth, uh, you know, empathizing with, but it gives me big, or excuse me, 964 gives me big Midori vibes in terms of like how far it's willing to go to emphasize just like how gross a situation is. Yeah. Um, you've just left just, listener. You can't see, but Blake <laughs> has left a screenshot from it in here. Uh, and that's not, that's not the worst. It, it gets worse. It gets more sorted. Um, so again, not maybe for everybody. I would put many content warnings on that recommendation, but just as a recommendation for content, you might want ugh, you keep sharing. <laughs> that's me. That's me after I watched. It's uh, really for Pinocchio. <laughs> yeah, I've never it's seen this. I've, I've wanted to see it. Uh, yeah, maybe, awesome. maybe I, I think it might be up your alley. It's a little more plotty than you might be ready for, but uh, but it's there. Um, yeah, and uh, hey, listen to the rest of Region Free. Watch the movies that they're uh, that they're paying that they're paying attention to. Um, oh, be keep careful. your ear to the ground for more guests. What? Why? Why? Uh, you got something? Next week we're starting the next season, and here's the thing. We're going to Eastern Europe, baby. That's right. <gasps> oh, boy. Oh, oh what, boy. Oh, huh? Soviet. We're doing a Soviet season? Yeah, oh. we're going to look at some post-war Soviet films. Um, we're starting it off with two kind of icons of the genre, just movies that we both really want to talk about, or that Blake wants to watch, mm-hmm. actually. But uh, but I'm in the I tank. have not... Th- this is like I feel like we're flipping the script where I have seen none of the films we're about to watch. Yeah. Um so so, so the next so. two on the docket for the, for the month of April are going to be Come and See, which is a film you've probably uh come and heard about recently. The prequel got, to recently, fuck around, the prequel to fuck around to find out. That's right. <laughs> uh it got reissued by Criterion recently and I feel like just kind of has exploded in popularity in the past handful of years so very excited to talk about that one and then the week after that we're going to be back to talk about what uh on some days you could catch me calling the greatest film ever made which is andre tarkovsky's stalker um the goat Hardly i look forward not. to having a reason to watch that movie finally i've still never fucking seen it i've had to recommend I'll it to everybody. i'll tell i'll tell the story on the episode but i saw stalker for the first time like the week that i moved to new york and i knew no one and i was like what can i do on a saturday afternoon and i was like oh i've been meaning to watch stalker forever and i stumbled out of that theater three hours later a changed man wow yeah and then i don't want to give it away but aj sent me a message about the season after the soviet one Mm -hmm. and it's gonna get us thrown off the airwaves (laughs) oh boy uh, yeah uh we're probably gonna be taking a trip back to knee hole if you if you enjoyed if you enjoyed uh listening to the analysis of the fucked up gross moments in this movie you've got uh a lot more coming your way on the region free feed which we thank you so forward to it yeah for listening and jason we thank you for hopping on an honor that will never be taken away your challenge coin is in the mail as the first ever guest on region free it was a delight it was a lovely experience recording this episode and watching this movie with you um and thanks again to all of our listeners jason people can find you on the internet you plugged your podcast already but the mic is yours you know, I'm going to plug my podcast again. That's Hell Try yeah. Love. It's about movies we see at a cinema here in Minneapolis. I have another that I produce that I don't uh, often get behind mic for. It's about uh, Hey Arnold. We've actually inter- interviewed the creator of Hey Arnold a few times for that one. It's called Stoop Kids with a Z. Show up to that. Hell it's yeah. a lot of fun. Um, and you can find me, uh, my 
personal Twitter at Nintendufus, N-I-N-T-E-N-D-U-F-U-S, because my sister told me that D-O-O-F-U-S meant something obscene as a kid, so she wouldn't let me have that handle for my email, for my hotmail. Anyway, so it's N-I-N-T-E-N-D-U-F-U-S on Twitter and wherever else. Show up. Hell yeah. And thanks, hey, thank, thank you so much, guys, for including. I knew as soon as we were done with this movie, I knew I wanted to talk to you guys more about it, uh, especially like like just to like unpack everything we had, we experienced there. And AJ is a first time watcher. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I will cherish this forever. <laughs> thank you, everyone. Do, don't forget to watch the Chad Warden videos. <laughs> That's right. Jason, <laughs> they're really funny. Thank you.